0: Good morning. So good to see everyone here worshiping with us this Sunday morning. We can be praying for uh, Ty. As you know, he's not here, but um, his, his grandma's not doing well, and so he went to be with her. Uh, and thank you for Emily for filling in at the last moment. So that is very good that we have people who can do that. Well, welcome again. We're going to continue our series through 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. And actually, we're going to be wrapping up 1st Thessalonians today. And so if you have Bibles, you can turn to 1st Thessalonians chapter 5, or will be in verse 12 till the end um, when we get there. But before we dive into that, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Therefore, I thank you so much for who you are, for how you love us, for how you care for us, for how you provide for us. Lord, thank you so much for your word that we can sit under it, we can read it, we can know it, we can understand who you are, understand what you've called us to, understand that we respond because of gratitude, we respond because you've loved us first. Lord, I just pray for this time as we come to your word that you bring it to life in our minds and our hearts, that we truly can see what it means to be your people, what it means to be your family. God, I pray for this time that we as a church can be faithful to what you command, that we truly can be your people, and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So when I was growing up, you maybe experienced the same thing, but every time I went and visited friends, I noticed something very distinct. Their houses always smelled different than mine. Not always bad, sometimes bad. But their houses smelled different. It was just weird. You walked into a different house, like, wow, that's the first thing that always struck me, is that house smelled different. But that was actually just a little, the tip of the iceberg, because the whole household usually operated maybe a little differently. They had a little different rules. They had different priorities. They had different focus. They, they just organized their life differently than the house I grew up in. And it was just very interesting that this, like a little, it kind of marked out the family. It marked out the household, that it was different than other households. And the truth is that when we think about marks of the family, we've talked about that through First Thessalonians already, about how a mark of the household of God, a mark of the family of God, is love. And that love really shows the world that we are God's. But as we walk through that, what does that mean to love? What does it mean to love one another, how God would want us to love one another. And as we come to the end of First Thessalonians, we see Paul kind of helping us understand what it means to put the mark of love on as the family of God. And so let's turn to First Thessalonians <coughs> chapter 5, verses 12 through 28, and see how he marks out the family of God. It starts out. In verse 12, we ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything, hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. We see this kind of closing movement in this letter to the Thessalonians. And what are we supposed to draw from this kind of list of commands? And I just offer you this. Live as God's family. The truth is that the church is God's family. The church is the family of God, the household of God, the pillar and bustress of truth. And we're supposed to live as if that's true. That's the reality that kind of guides our lives. We live as God's family, that we actually take on the markers of being in his household. And we live in such a way that people actually recognize that. They see it. They can see how we operate with each other, that we're living as God's family. Live as God's family. It's interesting, when we come to this last <coughs> bit in this letter, maybe your, your Bible has the kind of heading, final instructions and in benediction, kind of, it, we get into almost like a, a bold list of commands. Paul just goes rapid fire. Doesn't even he elaborate. He's just like, do this, do that, boom, 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 boom. It's almost like he was running out of papyrus, and he's like, I got to fit these last little things in, and he's kind of writing them. It's kind of like when my kid doesn't plan well and they're writing a note and they start kind of slanting at the end, trying to fit everything in. That's how I get that sense when Paul is writing this letter. He's like, I got to fit in all these commands right in. These are so important. They must be lived out. So how are we supposed to make sense of a bullet list of commands like this that seem to almost be uh, disorganized or just kind of as he's thinking them, he's writing them down and sending them to the Thessalonians? How do we make sense of that? Well, one of the big markers we see right away is that he's the, who is he addressing when he's writing these commands. Right at the beginning he says, "We ask you brothers." And then a little later he says, "Brothers." And then five times in this section he he's talking to brothers. He's talking to the family of God. Brothers is this, is this language used throughout the New Testament to talk about The brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters, that's both kind of caught up in this term of brothers, that we are family. And he's talking to the family of God. He's, he's saying, hey, the reality is that if you believe, if you're in this church in Thessalonica, you are actually united with me, Paul, who's traveling the world. You're united with the, the churches in Philippi. You're united in the churches in Judea. You're united in the churches in Corinth. You're united with these churches that you should, because you are part of the family of God. And as such, I can look upon you, these people I know briefly and then had to flee because of the riots going on because we're spreading the gospel, I can look upon you and actually call you and believe and hold to this truth that you are my brothers and sisters in the faith. He's addressing this to the family of God. It's the context in which these, these commands fall into. That as believers, We live as God's family. How does the family work together? And it helps us get some framework to understanding this list of commands that we have here. And also we can start seeing how, while it seems on surface level, these commands are just random or kind of disorganized. We can put some structure to them because we start seeing they're addressing certain people, They're addressing certain movements of the family. The first thing he addresses is the leaders of the family, those who are working for the family, those people who are working on behalf of the family, the ministers, the pastors who are taking care of the family. That he's saying recognize them. But first of all, before he even talks about how they're supposed to operate towards them, we need to address how are these leaders supposed to operate? who are worthy of their respect is, first of all, these are people who labor among you and over you. These are people who are working for your benefit. That these leaders, these pastors, are people who are active in caring for the souls and the lives of those placed under them. And they're given these commands to do these things. That they're supposed to be among you. That these leaders... Are not someone who's above you, doesn't, not someone who comes out of a green room, steps on stage, and then leaves that you never know, but it's someone actually that cares for you, who's one of you. When we use the, 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 um, the language of a pastor or an elder is a shepherd, we use this language that they're supposed to smell like their sheep, that they're someone who's in and among the people they care for and take care of. They're supposed to smell like they sheep, and so we get that sense that they're among them. These leaders also are over the people, over the people in the fact that they're leading. They're leading from front. They're guiding people on how they should go. They're over them, not like the Gentiles, as Jesus says in, in Mark 10, 45, like that lord over them and kind of... You know, say, I'm the boss, follow me both. They're over people into saying, hey, I am a servant first. Now follow as we go together towards the cross of Christ. They're over people in a sense of saying, hey, I'm going to guide you towards who God is and how to follow God. And, and there's a call for people to respond to that leadership, to look towards Christ. It's interesting that he pairs these things both right next to each other, that they're among you, and they're over you. It gives that balance that they're one of you, and they care for you, but yet they're over you in a sense that they want what's best for you and are guiding you as one of them, a first among you, kind of leading you, guiding you towards who Christ is supposed to be. When I was reading this, I could not help but think of my first job and my first boss, who was definitely one of me but was over me. He also happened to be my brother. And we, we, our, first, our first kind of job was fixing up rent houses. And we would fix up these rent houses between renters, which made me never want to own rent houses. He made me, uh, and we fixed them up, we painted, we patched walls, we did all these things. We gained a lot of valuable experience. And at me as a younger brother, and my brother, the older brother, given this job, it was very clear he was over me. He made that very clear, that he was over me. But there was no doubt that he also was among me with me because he was doing probably most of the work. I was the anchor that he had to carry around trying to get stuff done. And I couldn't help that picture because I think that is kind of the picture that we get of an elder or a pastor. They're among you, but they're over you. They're among you, they're one of you, but they're over you. And so when you look for what has to be done, you see them first and foremost doing what has to be done and is inviting you along and saying, we must reach these people, we must proclaim the word, we must be out there, we must be doing what needs to happen. You see them already at work inviting you along into the great ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. They're over you and among you at the same time. And they're doing all these things, Paul says, in the Lord. These are leaders now for their own benefit. These are leaders now for what they get. These are leaders who are doing it for the glory of God. They do it as filling a call and saying, I must help lead a church so that people know who Christ is, but they're doing it for the glory of God, not for themselves, and as easily recognizable when you see someone leading for who Christ is. And they also are admonishing the people. It says, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord, and admonish you. Admonish you. Those who warn you against the ways of life that are opposed to God's ways. Those who warn you about how if you keep on that track, the consequences that will be yours. Those who admonish you, strongly warn you against the ways of the world. Those who admonish you, seeking to correct you, to bring you back towards what Christ would have you do. That a leader, a pastor, an elder is called to be one of those who's laboring, working among the flock so that they know who Christ is, being corrected and guided towards the truth. And then the people, the congregation, is called to respect them. That you respect those who labor among you. That actually you recognize, hey, these are people out for my benefit. That when they come to me and they have those difficult conversations, it's not a thing of power or about them, but it's about Christ. It's about me following Christ. That we respect them and actually honor them in that way. He says we esteem them highly in love. That we see that they're a valuable piece because every body, every gathering needs someone to help guide and point towards the truth, keep people on track. And so they are supposed to receive respect, esteem, high, high esteem, and be loved by the people. This is what, how the elders, pastors, are supposed to operate in the church, what they do and what they receive that we're supposed to live as God's family as we do that. And then the body as a whole, including the, the pastors and elders, are supposed to live in unity with one another. Paul says, Be at peace among yourselves. I think it's like on the heading of this next couple of verses about how that operates. Be at peace among yourselves. That we're supposed to be a body of peace. I can't help but think about peace and be at peace among yourselves. Thinking about uh, Matthew 5, uh, verse 9, which is in the Beatitudes, when Jesus says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. That actually, we are identified as God because we are peacemakers. Be at peace amongst yourselves because you're supposed to be peacemakers. But notice, we're called to be peacemakers, not peacekeepers. Peacekeepers are actually very easy to do. Peacekeeping is what happens when my kids are on each other's nerves and are fighting, and I separate them, and I put them in different rooms. I'm keeping the peace because Dad needs his nap. And you guys are disturbing that. But we're called to be peacemakers. That's what the gospel instills. That we don't just, we're not satisfied for people just not getting along, and so you put them in different rooms. No, we're peacemakers. That means we take these people at conflict and we make them hug it out. We make them love each other. We make them look at what's going on in this conflict and say, your relationship, your love for each other is deeper and stronger than whatever is going on. And that's what happens in the community of God, that we get on each other's nerves. Trust me, I talked to you guys, I know this is a fact. We get on each other's nerves. But we don't just say are satisfied by separating and saying we'll keep the peace. No, we're peacemakers. We lean into that relationship and we say, I don't care what's going on right now. Guess what? I love you more than this conflict. And I'm going to lean into that. And we're going to be peacemakers so that we can be a community in unity. We can love each other and let the love of Christ be evident in our lives, in our relationships. Excuse me, that a gospel community has unity that's built and founded on the truth of who Christ is and who's called us to be. And so we have unity together as we walk through life together. And if you look right after what comes after Paul says, be at peace amongst yourselves, he gives a list of commands of how we operate as a community together. Verses 14 and 15, he says, uh, I mean, uh, he says, we urge you, brothers, to admonish the idol, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays evil, uh, for evil, but always seek to good, do good to one another and to everyone. We see this list of commands of what it means to actually be peace amongst each other, that you're in each other's lives. That it's not just leaders who admonish those. Though we admonish brothers and sisters we see who have gotten us off track. He says, admonish the eye of people who, are, who have been caught up into this fallacy back in Thessalonica about how they don't need to work anymore. We admonish them and say, No, we work all things for the glory of God. And that We're supposed to admonish, we're supposed to encourage those who are uh, faint hearted. Those who are experiencing trials and are wondering how they're going to get through, we're supposed to come alongside of them and encourage them that they can get through it, through whatever's going on in their lives, with Christ in their life. We're supposed to help the weak. Those who are weaker than us, we come alongside and we give them our shoulder and say, I'm helping you as we walk towards Christ in these things. We're supposed to be patient with them all. But as we're doing this, as we're admonishing, as we're encouraging, as we're helping, we are patient with those who might not get as fast as we got it. We're patient with those who might not be applying it as well as maybe we are applying it. We're patient with them all, and then we help everyone live out the truth of the gospel where we don't repay evil for evil. but We give people good even when they give us evil to walk in these ways to be the family of Christ, to live as God's family. But notice what these mean. these, these, this list of commands means. It means that the family of God is supposed to be in each other's lives. You can't do this if you're not involved in someone else's life. You can't speak this truth. You can't help them. You can't encourage them. You can't Make sure the, the, where they're headed is, is where they're supposed to be headed if you're not involved in life. It's a call for people to actually care and be living life with other people. And I love it because it's actually showing us that when we go into someone's life, we don't just bring a one-size-fits-all answer saying, hey, just do this and your life's going to be okay. No, we actually know them enough to see where they stand and what they need. And so we care enough for someone that we walk into someone's life and we see that they are struggling. We don't bring admonishment. No, we bring encouragement. When we walk into someone's life and we see how they've off track, we don't bring encouragement saying, keep it up, good old boy. No, we bring admonishment. Saying, where you're going is not where you're supposed to be going. That we actually bring what each person needs with Christ. Saying, hey, this is what you're supposed to do. We actually know them and respond to what they're doing and how they're going into life with the gospel, which means all their needs. And when we do that, we will actually be a community in unity with one another. We actually have to have peace amongst ourselves as we lean into each other and let people lean into us. And we live as God's family when we do. We don't just do that in these relationships. We actually live as God's family as we gather together in worship. When we see verses 16 through 21, at the very least, I think we see a call to how the family gathers to worship. And it starts with that command, rejoice always. This is not a command for us to always be joyful. This is not a command that when we gather together, somehow we're supposed to instill emotions. What this is, what this is doing is, is, is more in lines of what Paul says in, in uh, Philippians 4, 4, when he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. It's not a call for emotion. It's actually an invitation to worship. It's like the calls that we see throughout the Gospels. They say, hey, come, let's worship God with our voices. Come, let's call upon our holy God. It's a command to gather together, to rejoice always. So actually, no matter what's going on, we can rejoice in who God is. And how do we do that? It's when we gather together in a, 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 a body for worship. We're called to rejoice. And rejoice all we're called to worship together. And how do we do that? We rejoice. We praise who God is. We pray continually. We pray without ceasing. And when we gather together, we lift not only in our voices and song, rejoicing who God is but we lift our voices and our souls in prayer, actually knowing that we can speak to the Almighty God. And so we come together and we pray that we're supposed to be praying our own, but yet there's a special place when we gather together and lift our prayers together. We know God hears us and responds to us and we should be praying without ceasing. I love uh, how one commentator put it. He said this about prayer. He says, for many of us, Someone else. All right. He says this, Prayer is the most important expression of the new life. As such is the means of attaining for ourselves and for others the satisfaction of needs, both physical and spiritual. It is also a divinely pointed weapon against the sinister attack of the devil and his angels, the vehicle for confession of sin, and the instrument whereby the grateful soul pours out its spontaneous adoration before the throne of God on high. Accordingly, pre- per- perseverance in prayer is urged. I think that commentary is a kind of a master and understatement. Just think of what he just said that in prayer, we actually can come before the Almighty God and bring forth our needs, and He fulfills them, both physical and spiritual, both individual and corporate. That in prayer, we actually come before the Almighty God and ask His help against the battle against the devil, the enemy. And he grants it. That in prayer, we can come before him and confess our sins and have the confidence that he washes them away. That they're blotted out. That they're no more. He considers them no more. That in prayer, we can actually pour out spontaneous adoration before the throne of God and worship. And then he just sums up, yeah, and accordingly, you probably should keep on doing that. Yes. How valuable that is. Pray without ceasing. Come before God and know the great value it is to be able to communicate with our Almighty God. That we praise Him. (coughs) We pray continually or we pray without ceasing. And we also give thanks in all circumstances. That we come before God as a body and we give thanks. To him, there's a reason why. Traditionally, when we celebrate the Lord's Supper or Communion, the, the, the bread is actually called the Eucharist. That that time is called the Eucharist. That is, is Latin for Thanksgiving, giving thanks. Why? Because when we remember who Christ is, when we gather together and remember how He has saved us in spite of our sin, when we gather and remember the death He endured for our sake. That obtains us salvation. When we remember that, our first and foremost expression should be thanks. That we give thanks to our almighty God for saving us. And I love how Paul says, in all circumstances, because he knows that what Christ has done for us overshadows and overpowers anything else we'll go through. That no matter what's going on in life, we can remember. God's love through Jesus Christ, and we give thanks for that. We give thanks for who God is. He says, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. I think he's saying this is the will of God for all three of those, to be rejoicing, to be praying, to be giving thanks. This is what God's will is for us, to be a people who know what he's done for us and to be living and responding accordingly. That we know how He's loved us, we know how He cares for us, and so we respond to His great salvation. John Stott, another commentator, says this: it "Is God's will, as expressed and seen in Jesus Christ, whenever His people meet together for worship, and whatever their feelings and circumstances may be, that there should be rejoicing in Him, praying to Him, and giving Him thanks for His mercies." And how true is that, whenever? As people gather, they should be doing that. Praising him, praying to him, and giving thanks to him. But worship also involves us coming before God and sitting under his word. Paul hints set this ministry of the word when he says that we're not called to despise prophecy. And then later on in, in uh, verse. 27, he says, to put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read among all the brothers, to all the brothers, this idea that we're supposed to hear the word of God. And now when we hear the prophecy, I don't know where your mind goes. Maybe it goes in some kind of weird place or maybe some places uh, that maybe don't fit into how we think this normal church service operates. But prophecy is telling you, you've got to remember that these people are receiving the word of God and that when people came, People are forgiving words from God. And so Paul is saying, when someone comes to give you the word of God, you receive it. Now you test it, he says. You test it and make sure it's true and, and, and we can trust it. He says we test everything, hold fast, what is good. And what do it mean? It means when someone comes to give you the word of God, a word that is coming from God, we actually should hear what is said, but then test it by God's word. Back in, this means we test it by the Old Testament, seeing if it aligns with the character of who God is. Test it by the apostles' words, which were coming by prophecy. We should test and see if this is true. Nowadays, when we when someone comes to give a sense of what God has for you, which is very similar to what we do when we come up here and stand and preach, we're bringing God's word to people. And you're supposed to test it and see if it's good. That when you hear... <coughs> excuse me. <coughs> when you hear me or any of the elders come up and said, hey, this is God's word, and you receive like this, your first response should be, great, let's receive it. But you should also say, let's test it. Because I trust God's word over anyone who stands on this stage. And we test and make sure it's true and holds fast to what God would want us to do. And so we should receive the God's, God's word in this way, and actually promote God's word and make sure people come to it and understand it. But in all these things, is, is there's that link if you just if you were reading along, I went from the praise to the did not despise prophecies, but there's that verse in between, do not quench the spirit. That's my notes. What's interesting about that is that when you read this passage, I think it almost goes in both categories of when we gather together and worship and praise and prayer, when we sit under the word, the, the word that God would have us, we're not supposed to quench the spirit of God. That John saw again says Paul is saying, let the Holy Spirit speak to you through His word and listen to His voice. Do not quench Him, and also let the Holy Spirit move you to respond to the word and praise, prayer and thanksgiving. Do not quench Him. Then all these things. We actually are not so-called a quenched spirit. We actually listen to the Holy Spirit that we've been given, that, res- that resides in us, that unites us to Christ, that applies the salvation he, a- he has earned to us, that transforms us from the inside out, that-, that, is- that renews us and regenerates us to be God's kids. We listen to him, and we live in accordance to what he would have us, how he would have us live always in alignment with his word, but we do not quench the spirit. And when we feel God moving, which is beyond emotions, we follow and seek to honor him, testing against God's word to be his in all these things. Then all these things, we seek to honor God and worship, to live as God's family and a community in worship. We're not just a community that has unity. We're not just a community in worship. We actually are actually a abstaining community. Excuse me. Verse 22 says, abstain from every form of evil. Such a short little statement, but such a profound statement. That the church, as Paul has just been writing about, should be known by what it does. The church should be known about how it loves each other. The church should be known how it, by how it worships God. That's how the church should be known. But it should also be known by what it abstains from. That the church should be markedly different from the world. Not just by how we love, not just by how we care, not just because of the truth we stand in, but actually it affects us so much that we cannot live like the world. We abstain from all forms of evil. That we actually abstain this is this is a simple word that means we restrain ourselves from from doing something that means we know that we can look around and we see things that we're not called to do as Christ followers that look tempting that look enticing that look maybe like we want to fall them but we restrain ourselves through the power of God through the spirit that lives in us and we don't walk as the world walks we live as God's family <coughs> Excuse me, and we do it to all forms of evil and i don 't have to outline all the various forms of evil we can look upon this world and see the world running after, but we're called to abstain from those. then the world wants to throw up you know all sense of sexual ethics, and to say there's no holes bar, and you can do whatever you want, we look upon that, and we recognize that could tempt some of us to fall astute, but we abstain from it. When the world wants to put on some language of rights so it can kill babies in the womb, we look upon that and know evil when we see evil, and we abstain from it that we stake our ground on the truth of who God is and we're not moved, we're abstaining community that knows God's truth, knows what is better, and so we walk differently than the culture around us. And if we feel tension there, a pushback there, which we will, is because when we look upon the world, we see a world that does not only run to sin, but gives approval to those who do. This is Paul's testimony in Romans chapter 1, talking about how God has given over humanity to all sorts of sin. He says this, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. That a world in sin... Is going to approve of those who are in sin. And if they approve of those who are running after the things of the world, how will they look upon us who do not? They don't approve when we take our stand and with love, reaching out to others, not as holier than thou, not as somehow we're better than anyone else, but knowing the truth of what God has called us to do, knowing that we were once like them running after those things with no knowledge of the truth. But we have been saved by Christ. We have been renewed by the Holy Spirit and we stand on his word. We can no longer live like that. And so now with passion and with conviction and with love, we speak to the world and say, live, know who God is. Know the truth of Christ and live for him. (coughs) And we don't practice those forms of evil. We abstain from them. Because we're called to live as God's family, and part of that is not living as the world does. But in all of these things, as leaders are leading, as we are practicing unity, as we're worshiping together, as we're sitting under the word, as we're abstaining from evil, we do it all because we trust in who Christ is we get to that great benediction that Paul has at the end of his letter. Where he says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, he will surely do it. Why is that such a great benediction filled with hope? Because he ends his letter not with get to work. He ends his letter with he will do it. That when we come to the end, we have these commands, we're supposed to feel an urge to follow, and we should. We should feel gratitude to who God is, and it should prompt us to want to live in response to how he saved us. But then he comforts us with the end by saying, it's not about how well you follow. It's not well how well you've applied what I've just said. Where does our hope lie? The God of peace himself will sanctify you completely he's the one working the god himself will bring your whole spirit soul and body to be kept pure uh, be kept blameless at the coming of the lord jesus why because he who calls you is faithful it's not about how well you're faithful he who calls you is faithful and when he says you're mine you're his when he says you're my cut co- my child you're his kid when he says he loves you, he loves you. When he says he's going to send Christ to die for you in spite of your sin, he does. When he says you are mine and I'm going to complete the good work, I'm going to complete, i have started in you, he completes it. When he says I'll see you in paradise, he means it. That God completes the work, he starts with, and he is the one who does it. That's where our comfort lies. And so in all these things, as we look towards leaders, as we seek to have unity, as we worship God, as we abstain from evil, we do them all trusting in our Savior. He is the one who does it. He is the one who gives us power to live out the life for him. We trust him and then live as God's family. So what about us when we read this list? The great thing about this list is that the applications almost make themselves. As we're reading along, we say, oh, I'm supposed to do that, I'm supposed to do that, as God's families. But how do we apply these to our lives, trusting in God in the midst of them? And I'll just offer you these simple things that you should probably already have taken from reading it. That we follow godly leaders. That implies that actually... The body of Christ is supposed to be organized in a way that we come together and we recognize that there are some people who are ministering to us, some people who are laboring for us, who are working for our good, and we listen to them. We listen to them on a Sunday morning, and when we speak into our life, we listen to them, and then we say, Hey, let's as a church go in this way. We listen to them and we recognize that's what the body is supposed to be. We need someone charging out front that we listen to. Two leaders and I I'm just here's a very I hate that point because I'm a pastor and it's like, hey, listen to me. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying clearly God has given the body people who are supposed to care for it. The great thing I love about this church is it's not just me, that I serve alongside elders who care for this church. I serve alongside many different ministry leaders who care for this church, but God has given leaders to the church to help promote unity, help to promote godliness, help to promote ministry so that we stay on track. And so I can easily say, if you don't want to listen to me, all right, listen to the five other elders of this church as we seek to lead you towards who Christ is and how we're supposed to live in unity together and live for who Christ is. And then let's have unity together. That when people walk in to Rare Valley Community Church, they should see a body of Christ that loves each other deeply, that is united by something that transcends any kind of squabbles, any kind of conflict that we might experience. That we, they see people who love each other dearly, serve each other dearly, and want to pour out each other, our lives for the sake of others. That we want to be a church that's united by the gospel and that's what defines us. That we love each other and we're willing enough to let people in to speak the truth and we're willing enough to take that bold step of speaking the truth to someone who needs to hear it. That we are actually a community that is founded on a unity of the gospel. And we live that out. And we are a community that Worships boldly. That when we read this, these lists of commands of how we should worship, we see that and say, We do that on a regular basis. That when we gather together, we are rejoicing. When we gather together, we're lifting our voices in prayer. When we gather together, we're giving thanks for who God is. When we gather together, we sit under His Word. When we gather together, we want to grow as His people. When we gather together, the Holy Spirit is actively applying the word to our lives so that we can be God's people in all circumstances, not just here, not as we gather, but also as we scatter out through this community, through the River Valley at large, we are worshiping God known by what he has told us through his word. And we should be a people who do what he has called us to do. And we should be a people who do not allow sin to hang around in our lives that we actively seek to cut it out. A lot of us are really good at doing that with other people, but let's start with ourselves, that we are people who actively seek to devote ourselves to what God has called us to do, and we abstain from all forms of evil. We restrain ourselves. That in every believer, there's a battle going on between the new nature who's in Christ and the old nature that is in sin. But guess what? The one, the new nature in Christ, the new being who you are, the new creation you are once you know Christ is far stronger than who you were before. And Christ is giving you the power, giving you the Holy Spirit, giving you a community that where you can restrain yourself from all manners of sin, all forms of evil, and we do so. We do all these things trusting in who Christ is. We do all of these things working as he works powerfully in us. We do all these things trusting that this is not about earning our way into heaven. This is not about proving to him we're good enough. This is not proving to other people we're good enough. This is about responding to what Christ has done for us. And we respond in gratitude and say, here I am, take it all. Respond to who he is, trusting in him to finish the work. Because we're called to live as God's family. To so live as children of God. Join me in prayer. Jeremy <coughs> and Father, thank you for your word. That we can read it, we can know it, we can trust in it. That we can respond to it. That we can be people of your word. We can be people of the Holy Spirit. We can be people of unity with one another, loving each other, serving one another, being there for one another. That we truly can live as the family of God in all manners, in all days, all all different circumstances we're in, the different settings we find ourselves in, the different places, wherever we are, however we're feeling. We can know the truth of who you are and how you've called us to respond with our lives. And we can trust in you and all of it. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If